Every two years, for the past eight years, Ligonier Ministries has teamed up with LifeWay Research to put their finger on the pulse of the American culture and the American church. Their polling of American adults focuses on the moral, spiritual, and theological issues of our time. In their 2022 State of Theology, as they call it, which came out this fall, they polled more than 3,000 American adults, nearly 25% of which claim to be evangelical Christians. Now, their polling came in the form of a statement, and they ask those responding to the poll to say, do you, do you strongly agree with this statement, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, or strongly disagree with that statement? They ask questions like this in the form of those statements. Does God change? Are we born innocent? Does church membership matter? Those are the kinds of things they're asking. I found this statement to be um, particularly interesting. The statement is this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 54% of the American adults responding to this poll affirmed um, uh, strongly or or somewhat strongly um, that they agreed with that statement. 54% agreed Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. Another statement. Oh, oh, I I have to tell you this. Uh, Evangelicals um, that were among that group 43% agreed with that statement. 43% of so-called American evangelicals agreed with the statement, Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. This next statement is is, uh, interesting as you compare the first one I just mentioned and this next one. The next statement is this. The Bible is 100% accurate in all it teaches. Okay? 53% of all American adults affirmed that statement. Agreed, in some, some, either somewhat or strongly. 53%. Among evangelicals, 95%. Oh, do you see a disconnect between those first two statements? 95% say... Yes, the Bible teaches the truth. And yet, nearly half of those identifying themselves as evangelical Christians say Jesus is not God. There is an enormous disconnect. And it leads me to conclude that there may be a lot of Christians... Uh, uh, there, there may be a lot of people in church pews claiming to be Christians but are indeed false converts. This is an interesting statement that really gets to the, some core issues of our culture in our day. Here's the statement. Gender identity is a matter of choice. 
Gender identity is a matter of choice. 42% of adult respondents agreed with that statement. Of the evangelicals in that group, 37% agreed. And 32%, a third of those evangelicals responding, strongly agreed with that statement that gender identity is a matter of choice. Now, this whole idea of gender identity is a hot topic in our culture right now, pushed along by advances in, in medical science uh, knowledge, medical skill that's able to um, glue on and chop off uh, human body parts at will and, and some, somewhat make them function. My, my, uh, my best friend, whom you also know as my wife, uh, teaches public speaking in a local community college. And this last week, um, her students gave their persuasive speech. And one of her students sought to persuade her classmates to understand that one's gender is largely a reflection, mostly a reflection of how one thinks and feels. She read this quote as a part of her speech. Quote, Gender identity is all about how you, in your head, think about yourself. It's about how you internally interpret the chemistry that composes you. Now those that side with this student elevate subjective thoughts and feelings and push aside, eschew objective facts about how one's gender is identified. Consider some of these objective facts. Um, men and women have different skeletal structures. It does not take a rocket scientist to understand that the hips of a man and the hips of a woman are different. Anybody disagree with that? Um, uh, men are physically stronger than women. When men, men have denser bones, stronger bones, tendons, ligaments. Um, they, they, ladies tend to have less muscle mass per their total body mass. A, a man's brain is physically different than a woman's brain. Researcher, uh, researchers at Stanford University certainly not the bastion of conservatism, have concluded that part of, uh, the part of, uh, of a woman's brain that deals with emotions and relationships is physically larger, and there's more connectivity than what a man has that composes his brain. Uh-huh. And then, on a micro level, every 
cell in a human body has genetic material in it. DNA. Dioxynucleic something acid. (laughs) The DNA has all of this genetic information paired up, bound up in chromosomes. uh, and, And these pairs of chromosomes dictate how tall you are and what color your hair is and if you even have hair. The 23rd pair of the chromosomes, called the sex chromosome, scientifically determines your gender. It's permanent. It cannot be altered, and every cell in your body says either you are a boy or you are a girl. There is no other option. It is one or the other. Now, those are the facts. That's the truth of the matter. Now, there are many people that would choose not to accept that and would, 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 would say, well, that's, that's inconvenient for me in the life that I choose to live. But a boy is a boy, and a girl is a girl. Period. On one occasion, Abraham Lincoln, speaking obviously in a different generation to different issues, asked this question. How many legs would a sheep have if you called his tail a leg? Some sheepishly said, five. Immediately he responded, you're mistaken. The sheep would still have just four legs. Calling something a leg doesn't make it so. Sewing on body parts, cutting off body parts doesn't doesn't change anything. The fact of the matter is, no amount of surgeries... No amount of drugs, no amount of persuasive speeches, no amount of of counseling is going to change how God has put us biologically, scientifically together. The facts are the facts. The truth is the truth. Now, there are many who choose not to examine the truth, not to express the truth, not to um, embrace the truth. But the truth is still the truth. We see these very same principles lived out for us in our text in John chapter 9. I invite you to turn there with me. Last week we opened this chapter and we found Jesus in Jerusalem healing a man who had been born blind. He walked up to this man, he spit in the dirt, made some, some, some mud, placed it on the man's eyes and said, I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That, that, that pool means scent. 
That's the name, what the word means. And so, so the, the blind man made his way down to the, to the south end of the city, the lowest part of Jerusalem, where everything went downhill. There he was at the pool of Siloam. He washed himself and he came out a sighted man. Now, that miracle uh, caused no small stir in that man's life, in that man's family's life, in Jerusalem, and to this day. Jesus sent this man to the pool called Sent, translated, with intention so that the, the, the man himself and all the other people around him would know, would affirm, would see that Jesus is the one sent from the Father in order to redeem fallen mankind. Our text this morning, beginning at verse 13, is the follow-up to that miracle. I want you to follow along with me as I read. I'm going to start at verse 13 of chapter 9 and go through verse 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's, he's, a, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and that he received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, you do not want to become his disciples, do you? 
They reviled him and said, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. You see, these same principles, as I mentioned earlier, there are those here in this account that failed to examine the truth. Some that failed to express the truth. Some that failed to embrace the truth. There's my three points and the division of this text this morning. In verse 13, it begins with uh, an, uh, a dangling pronoun. It begins with the word they. They brought to the Pharisees the man formerly blind. Who, who's the they? Well, we don't know. It, it, it might have been some of the neighbors. We read at the end of the text last week, uh, beginning of verse 8, that there were some neighbors when uh, the man went home and, uh, and, and they were just amazed. What? Tell me that again. How, how, how many fingers do I'm holding up here, buddy? Come on. You can't, you're pulling my, you can see? And they wanted to have some kind of verification because this had never been done before. This was a sign of something. So they went to their religious leaders. Maybe. It may be that there's a little bit of time that passes between the miracle itself and when this man was brought to the Pharisees. And maybe some Pharisees found out about this and drug this man in to interrogate him, find out what's going on. Because Jesus was on their radar. You couldn't escape the guy. Well, in verse 14, we find that there's a reason for their angst and for the content of this chapter. Verse 14 tells us that it was on the Sabbath day that Jesus healed this man. Now, we, we spent a good bit of time when we were in chapter 5 dealing with Jesus healing the lame man beside the pool who had been diseased and disabled for 38 years. He healed that man on the Sabbath also. Now, that's significant. Jesus pushed the envelope. He pushed the issue. He, he forced the religious authorities. He forced the people to strongly look at who he is. The Jews went into exile in Babylon, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, largely because they violated the Sabbath. They did not 
honor the fourth commandment. They continued to make the Sabbath day just like every other day. It was just another work day. And God had prescribed that they should do no work on the Sabbath and they should keep that day holy. Set it aside. It's a day of rest. It's a day of worship. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews came back into the land and they collectively said, we don't want to go through that again. How are we going to change things, gentlemen, so that we make sure that we do not violate the fourth commandment? And the rabbis came up with an elaborate scheme. You remember when we were in chapter 5, we, we, we went through this. They, they created 39 different categories of work, and to do any of them was to violate the Sabbath. Healing somebody that was sick, unless it was a matter of life and death, was a violation of the Sabbath. To anoint someone was a violation of the Sabbath. To need something was a violation of the Sabbath. That is, to put water and flour together to make bread, to knead that was to violate the Sabbath. So here is this man who claimed to be born blind and now who claims that Jesus healed him. Well, he heals him on the Sabbath day. And immediately, some of these Pharisees came to a conclusion. The conclusion was that Jesus cannot be God. He cannot be the Messiah. Why? Because, very clearly, he violated the Sabbath. He made at least these three violations when he brought sight to this man. A, he healed him in a general sense. It was not a life and death situation. He could have done this on Monday or Wednesday night at prayer meeting. No. Jesus violated that commandment. Secondly, Jesus anointed this man. He put a salve on this man's eyes. Third, he needed saliva and dirt together to make his anointing mixture. Jesus is a lawbreaker. Jesus is a Sabbath violator. Jesus is one who is a transgressor of God's law, who takes no care to obey God's word. Now, Here's the fatal flaw in their thinking. If Jesus was indeed a violator of God's law, if indeed he did transgress the commandments, he could not speak for God. He was not the anointed one of God. He could not be. But what they were demanding Jesus 
follow, obey, conform to was their man-made laws. Jesus was perfectly within the, the, the boundaries of the fourth commandment when he healed the man diseased and disabled for 38 years. He was completely within the, the boundaries of the fourth commandment when he healed this man born blind. Verse 15, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight, asked him again how he received my, his sight. He said, he applied clay to my eyes, I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Case closed. We're done. We are done here. Illustrating these men failed to examine the truth. They failed to examine the, 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 the facts of the case. There was, in their minds, a gross violation of Sabbath laws, but he was breaking their laws, not God's laws. There were another group of, there was another group of Pharisees there among this group of religious leaders. We hear them hear from them in verse 16, middle of verse 16. Others, others among the Pharisees were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? They were looking at the, at the Sabbath breaking as much as they were looking at the sign. These men, silent minority that they were, were willing to at least begin to look at the facts. Here's the facts. We, I laid these out last week. God is the one who gives sight. Exodus 4, Psalm 146. Healing the blind is a sign of Messiah's presence. Isaiah 29, 35, 42. And never had this happened before. Never had a person who was born blind ever, ever been healed of that condition. Never. There is no record ever, anywhere. Always are there records of people that are sighted and they, then they get an eye infection and they are temporarily blind and the infection goes away and then they can see again. Does that happen? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're talking about somebody who does not and never has had any sight given the ability to see just like that. Never happened. God gives sight. The giving of that sight is a sign of Messiah, and it had never been done before. Those are the facts. At least the silent minority among the Pharisees are, are willing to consider this. Now, they are canceled. They are thrown out. They are discounted, pushed aside by the louder liberal majority. But the facts are still the facts.
Verse 17. So they said to the blind man, Again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Here's what they're asking. Is he from earth or is he from heaven? Now, had, had, had the blind man met Jesus? Yeah. He had a brief conversation with him. And Jesus touched his eyes and put some mud on it and told him to go wash. That may have been the extent of their conversation and relationship. Had this man ever put his eyes on Jesus? No, because he was blind when Jesus was there. And when he was healed, and he was now a sighted man, he was unable to find Jesus. So this is what he said. I, 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 don't, I don't know if he's from earth or he's from heaven. I, what I know, verse 25, is I was blind, and now I see. And you're asking me about who he is. I'm, he's he's got to be at least a prophet. That's what he says in verse 17. He's a prophet. You remember the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well midday? He's all by himself with her, and he begins opening up her life as he understands it perfectly well. And she said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oftentimes, as the Lord reveals himself to people, that's where they begin in their understanding of who Jesus is. He's a prophet. Now, we're going to see next week, Lord willing, this man understands that he is not just a prophet, he is God incarnate, and he worships him. And Jesus accepts that worship. But for now, in in the process of understanding what just happened to me, this man says of Jesus, uh, he's, he's he's a prophet. That is, he is one who is speaking for God. All right, the, the, the Jews are uh, are. are um, are, are shaking their heads. And, and, and we, we could say of, of them on this occasion, at this time, that they were um, blindly arrogant. They were convinced that they understood all of the details of the case and that they had a, 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 a right to speak a word of judgment here. The Scottish philosopher David Hume has um, uh, a, a statement I'd like to read to you that is most appropriate. Hume wrote this, I must confess that a man is guilty of unpardonable arrogance who concludes because an argument has escaped his own investigation that therefore it does not really exist That's the state of these religious leaders. In their unpardonable arrogance, 
they had many details in this case that escaped their notice, except for a few of the Pharisees. They denied that it ever existed. Case closed. We don't need to look at this further. Jesus is not of God. Second page of your notes. Point number two. Failing to express the truth. We've looked at failing to to, um, examine the truth. Point number two, failing to express the truth. Verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born blind or received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioning them said, "Is, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see Okay, three questions here. Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How is it that he now can see? Well, the answers to the first two questions are not a surprise. Think about this next question. How is it that your son sees? Can I, can I put a pause here in, the, um, in, in our text, and, and I'd like to explore something with you for, for, for just a moment to, to help you set the scene for what's taking place here. You remember after Jesus actually heals the man, telling him to go to the pool and wash, and he is healed. The blind man probably was looking for Jesus, He wanted to say, thank you. Oh, man, this is great. Never seen blue sky before. But he couldn't find Jesus. So where did he go? He went home. And the neighbors saw him walking by himself, and he bypassed things. It was obvious he was able to see. And they came up to him, and and he looked at them. That had never happened before. They knew that something was up. They talked about this thing. They were just aghast. What happened when he walked in the front door of his house? His parents' house. What do you imagine happened? As soon as... Oh, let's, let's assume this. Let's assume that mom and dad love their boy and want the best for him. Okay, is that, is that fair? probably wanted those two things for him. They loved him, wanted the best for him. What did mom do when she realized her son, born blind, could now see? All right, moms, what would you do? Scream, scream. I can't believe this, I can't believe this, I can't believe this. What would the father be doing? Calming his wife down, making sure she didn't pass out by hypertension, right? And once they finally sat down, what did mom say? I want to know everything. Tell me every little detail. I want to know names. I want to know places. I want to know the tone of voice that people were using. I want to know Everything she 
Don't know. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. You know, in, in modern American lingo, we have, a, we, have a, we have a phrase for this. These parents threw him where? Under the bus. The Holy Spirit knew the motivation of these parents. And through the pen of the Apostle John, helps us understand what was going on in the minds of mom and dad here. Verse 22 tells us, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of this synagogue. For this reason, they, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. How very, very sad. The parents would not celebrate with her son to tell the religious authorities who it was. Now, they may have justified their answer when, when, the, when the religious leader said, well, how did he, uh, how did he heal him? How did, how, did this, how did this come to be? They might have said, well, you know, we're not experts in theology like you guys. Uh, we don't understand how miracles take place. So we really can't answer the, the how question. And as for the who question, we've never met Jesus. We've never even seen him. So we really don't even know who he is or anything about him. We, we can't talk to that. They failed to express the truth that they knew. They have to know everything to answer those questions? No. But they didn't speak what they knew to be true. Let me give you a crazy example. I learned this week. You wonder why I learned this and where I learned it and, and what in the world were you doing on the Internet? But I learned this week that there are 550 paying members to the Flat Earth Society that was reorganized in 2009. Now these people, according to their website, not only believe, earnestly, sincerely believe, that the earth is flat, but also that there is no gravity. Things just fall. That's the way things are. Okay. Let's say, for the sake of illustrating my point in the text, that the leadership of the Flat Earth Society comes to your house and interrogates you why you believe the earth is round. Now, I'm assuming, I, didn't, I, I did look through the names of the list and I didn't find any of your names. So I'm assuming that you th might think that the earth is round. Let's say that it is, that's the case for just a moment. You've never been to outer space. 
Now, the, the people of the Flat Earth Society say that, that NASA has created an enormous boondoggle by, by creating photos that would lead someone to believe that the Earth is round. But you've never been there. You've never been to outer space. You, you can't say with first-hand personal information, personal knowledge that, yes, the Earth is round. You've seen it. You can't do that. But let's say in that interrogation process, you realize I have a globe of the earth in the basement. And in that interrogation process, you kept, kept, keep saying, well, I don't know, well, I don't know, well, I don't know. Because you haven't been there, but you have this globe in the basement and you fail to bring it out to show them. You might conclude that these people from the Flat Earth Society are, are blind, ignorant of the truth, and yet you fail to express the truth that you know. Verse 24, point number three, failing to embrace the truth. So a second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, there are some commentators that say this phrase, Give glory to God, really means this. We know that God is the one who heals blind people. So don't give glory to Jesus. Give glory to God. That's where it is due. I think there's a better way to understand that phrase. And it comes from uh, uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verse 19. In that section, Joshua, you'll remember, is um, uh, uh, um, dealing with uh, a sin that, that had come into the camp. Uh, the, the Israelites had been under a ban in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And there was a man by the name of Achan who violated that ban, and he took some things that were dedicated unto the Lord. He stole from God. Well, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, we, we read this. Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. I think that's more in keeping with what is um, in mind in the, in, the mouths, in the mouths of these Pharisees. Let, let, me, let me give you a, a, a paraphrase. This is my paraphrase. I'm expanding what, what we read in verse 24 by that phrase, give glory to God. Uh, before God, the Pharisees say to this formerly blind man, confess the truth. Tell us what we already know of this man. Go on. Confess that he is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I, I, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I, was see, now I see. He testified to what he knew was truth. 
There's many things, many questions that we will face. We really don't have all the answers that we would like to have. I mean, I've studied the Bible for a few weeks now. And there are many things I don't understand. And every once in a while, somebody will ask me a question, and I have no clue. Uh, We all are that way. There are all things, there are many things that are outside of our knowledge base. God doesn't ask me to have all of the answers, but to testify to what I know to be true. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? To to use um, uh, an image from, from, from the sports world, it was as though these religious leaders were in the boxing ring and up against the ropes, up against the ropes, in a corner, nowhere to go, and they had no more energy. Their hands were at their sides. They were open, they were vulnerable. They had no case against Jesus. So they start repeating the same thing. How did he do it? The core of the issue here is not the how, but the who. Verse 27, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? He responds with his own sardonic jab. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. Let me look at those two verses. There's a couple things that we need to just affirm. Moses did indeed speak for God, from God, on behalf of God, to the people of God. But listen to what God said of one who would come after Moses. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord is speaking here. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. That's Jesus. Yes, they were disciples of Moses The law came through Moses, but there was one coming of whom the Lord, that the Lord promised, and um, uh, earlier in that same chapter, Moses himself said, one is coming like me. Through Jesus, divine revelation is perfectly realized. So even though they embraced Moses, they were blind to what Moses said was coming. I find it interesting in chapter 7, verse um, um, 
in chapter 7. It says that, that um, the, um, um, the Jews knew where Jesus was from. And here in chapter 9, they said, well, we don't know where he's from. Well, on both accounts, they didn't fully understand anything. Hmm. Um, so, verse, um, verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Okay, let's review. God is the one who gives sight. Messiah is the one who will actually do the sight giving. Three, it had never been done before except now. This was the first time. Here's the amazing thing, he says. You don't know where he's from. And yet, he opened my eyes. The fact that this man was standing in front of them, formerly blind from birth, and now he was given sight. Only God does that. Only Messiah does that. Does not not tell them where he is from? Indeed it does. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. True. Those that are living apart from God, living on their own terms, God doesn't hear their prayers. He hears those who walk in obedience to him. Those are his children. Since the beginning of time, verse 32, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. True that. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. True that. Spot on. This uneducated man This man who had for all of his life been left at the curb to beg and scrounge for whatever he could find. This man had outsmarted and outwitted the religious authorities. His theology was sound. And we're going to find next week that his soul was saved. Verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? This is another ad hominem attack. How many times have we seen that here in the the book of John so far? If you can't deal with your opponent in the, in, in the realm of ideas, then push the ideas aside and, and attack the person's character or the, or the person's authority. Nah. 
you are entirely you were born entirely in your sins you, you know the, the, there's a uh, there's a veiled um kind of backhand affirmation of Jesus messiahship right here because this man um, is, is affirmed by the religious authorities to have been born blind. Now, it was their bad theology that's behind this statement, the retribution dogma, as we talked about last week. This man um, stood before them and was, was a sign that Jesus is none other than the Messiah. So, in keeping with their policy, end of verse 34, they put him out. They kicked him out of the synagogue. Synagogue was, was the hub of, of Jewish life, and uh, religiously, spiritually, uh, socially, and, and he was removed. And he felt all alone. He felt like he had always felt every day of his life as a blind man. Nothing new there. And soon he's going to find Jesus finding him. Oh, I can hardly wait till next week. By way of application, let me, let me uh, conclude with a couple of, uh, couple of statements here. First is this. Truth is ultimate, truth is objective, truth is old. We, we live in an age of relativism where um, your truth is your truth. And truth changes, truth shifts. Truth can be altered. Truth can be chopped off with a surgical procedure. Or added with a surgical procedure. No. Truth is ultimate, objective, and old. It's not determined by our subjective feelings. One modern philosopher said this, Relativism undermines the credibility of any form of orthodox belief. Relativism says, you have your beliefs and I have mine. And that's just splendid. Orthodoxy says, truth exists whether we believe it or not. And believing falsely is anything but splendid. The problem is, orthodoxy always appears intolerant in a relativistic culture. And those who are intolerant are canceled, sidelined, pushed to the curb. I love this quip by Warren Wearsby. He said, If it is new, it is not true. If it is true, it is not new. Because truth endures. Truth is unalterable. Truth is outside of our subjective experience. 
I can embrace that. I can live within truth, but I can't change it. Let me give you two exhortations. I have a couple of blanks for you to fill in here. Two, two ways for me to respond to this, all that we've talked about. I've talk, how many times have I used the word truth here this morning? That'd be kind of interesting to count them. First two blanks. First exhortation. Pity and pray for those who do not embrace truth. Pity and pray for those who do not embrace truth. Sadly, uh, there are there are many who, with a a very loud and confident voice, live with their head in the sand, not knowing of which they do not speak, not knowing. I'll just leave it there. I'm not sure. I I, might, I need to reword that sentence. Um, I, I want you to turn with me to uh, to the book of Romans. Thinking about those people that are ignoring the truth, um, uh, certainly not embracing the truth. Read with me in Romans chapter one, what 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 Paul says of of the the unregenerate, un, unconverted person. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Unsafe people, blind people, people that are living, groping, gasping in the dark. They don't know what the truth is. Pity them. Pray for them. Be patient with them. Second, speak the truth boldly and courageously. Speak the truth boldly and courageously. If you have people from the Flat Earth Society knocking at your door, thumping you in the chest for believing such a stupid thing that the earth is round, speak the truth boldly and courageously to them. They need this truth. Why do people not embrace the truth? Oh, for a variety of reasons. A, they're Pride doesn't want them to admit that they were wrong. They are in error. They're simply looking out for themselves. They don't embrace it because they don't want to change. 
to come to Christ, to come under his authority, to submit to him as the Lord and Savior, is to say, God, I don't want to live my life the way I've been living it. I want to come under your authority. I want to live life the way you want me to live life. To come to Christ is to repent of, of my, 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 my selfish manner of living and to live life on God's terms according to his direction and guidance, according to the scriptures. And people that are content with um, falsehood are unwilling to change. My friends, God is the one who reaches down and gives sight. He is the only one who is able to do that. That's what God does. And he chooses to use his people to bring the light. Let's pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us your glory revealed in Christ. Allow us to see the wonder, the grandeur, the marvel of your perfect work. I pray in Jesus' name.